0: You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network.
1: You're listening to episode 369, and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Connor Rogers is a software developer for View Incorporated. He is also the creator of Snowpacker, and he has a deep love for open source. Welcome to the podcast, Connor.
0: Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, Greetings from my basement, because the kids are still asleep.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for recording in the morning with me. Now, Connor, I am super interested in this because I know it's quite interesting. What is your developer origin story?
0: So my developer origin story is um, actually, so I started immediately out of high school. I joined the Army, and I became a medic there, and I worked in EMS for seven years while um, being in the army as well in the army reserves. And then, um, actually what ended up happening was I was right after I got my paramedic license, I was talking to some friends. They're like, Oh yeah, you know, I've been a software developer. I do this, this, and this. And like I was starting to get tired of my job and I was like, you know what? This sounds cool. I could, I could do this in my spare time. I have some extra time while I'm at work. So I started coding my free time in January of 2017. And then, um, I started off with Java, it was through some, um, like a like an open source boot camp almost, um, through a university, it was just an open source course that anyone could take. I went through that and I loved it, I moved on to the Odin project, uh, which is like a Ruby on Rails focused version of an open source um, course, and then I just fell in love with it and just kept going. and. Probably about six months ago, I got my first job with Hampton actually over at uh, View Incorporated and uh, here I am now. Um, Just continuing to keep going.
1: I love the tenacity behind your story because I see you on Twitter and you work so hard and you are so included in the community and I'd love to see more people like you, Connor.
0: What's also missing from that story is when I started, my oldest son was one years old and then um, I also had another son, Two and a half years ago, so I have a five-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old at home, which also uh, <laughs> added a little extra time to getting that first job because it—it's really like you had to make time to put in coding. Like there was no way to like, oh, I'll just do it when I feel like. Like you, you had to like chunk out portions of the time.
1: Yeah, you must be incredibly driven to be self-taught that way. So before we get into the real topic of why I brought you onto the show today, I'd love to ask what the story is behind your GitHub handle.
0: So I made my GitHub handle. It's ParamagicDev, and like I have like my Discord handle is Paramagician. It's just all play on like the fact that I was a paramedic, and like I didn't realize people use their actual names when using their GitHub account, and like now I'm like, oh, maybe I should have just used my regular name like everyone else. But you know, here we are now, and I have like 150 repositories, so I'm not gonna change it now. It's too much effort uh, invested into that account.
1: I totally agree with you. We have eight developers at work and only two of us have fake names. And you know what? I'm committed to my GitHub handle, which is regular lady. So <laughs> I totally understand that. So Connor, as a self-professed back end developer, what is a front-end bundler?
0: So I think the important thing to talk about when we get into front-end bundlers is why do they exist? First of all, so. The reason a front-end bundler exists at all is if you go back to HTTP one, um, every request you make to the server for an asset would make a whole new HTTP request. So you were, you know, you could potentially just overload a server on asset requests, or you'd wait forever for your assets to load. So the way people got around that was they made these bundlers that would essentially push everything together into one request so you only made one asset request. Now, things are changing as of HTTP/2 where you have uh, connection multiplexing where you can, you know, concurrently request multiple assets and on top of that each new asset request won't, won't do a full HTTP, HTTP request because it's it has that multiplexing so it doesn't do the full handshake cuz it's like, oh, we recognize this, we already know we already know this person, we don't have to do the full thing again. Um, so that's why the front-end bundlers exist and then as to what they are I, I try to think of them as doing four things they do they handle concatenation so they push everything together so like let's say you had a um, an API on the back end that had four redirects to it right every it takes time to get to each redirect what the bundler will do is you want to bring all those redirects into one and just figure out what that final end path is. So that's part of the concatenation is we don't want all these redirects. We just want to know what we need right away. And then on top of it, we're also pushing everything together so that we only have one request. Um, The next thing they'll handle is uh, minification. So like they take all your JavaScript and like turn it into like single letter variables and remove white space and remove extra lines and you know, just make, make it as small as possible so that people have to download this. The next thing it'll handle is uh, transpilation. So like, let's say you're, I guess the easiest way is, let's say there's a feature in uh, Ruby 2.7, they introduce pattern matching. And let's say you're on Ruby 2.6, so you can't use pattern matching what the transpilation will allow you to do is essentially import a polyfill, which will let you use that pattern matching even if you're not on the correct version. And that's kind of what these front-end bundlers allow you to do is to use unsupported features so that, you know, you you can use this unsupported feature but you don't necessarily need to have it available in the browser. Um, And then the final thing they'll handle is asset handling. So if you look at like the official JavaScript spec, I know people are so used to just like importing an svg in a javascript file and like it just works you actually can't do that in regular javascript you have to have a bundler handle that for you and turn that svg into a usable format for you that you can then you know do whatever you want with and that's like the that's like the high-end overview of what bundlers do for you
1: Thank you so much for explaining all that. I absolutely had no idea that transpilation was a thing. So we'll definitely include a note in the show notes because I'm fascinated with that concept. And that's such a cool example of what you could do with it. So what was the experience for front-end bundlers in Rails before Webpacker?
0: So prior to Webpacker, they had what's called the Asset Pipeline. It actually still lives in Rails. Um, Rails 6 projects will ship with both Webpacker and the Asset Pipeline, otherwise known as Sprockets. Um, I never really got into the asset pipeline um, because I came along like Rails 5.2 area where everyone was starting to really get into Webpacker. So that's all I really learned. But in my few experiences with the asset pipeline, I've run into like various caching issues. It's a little bit hard to debug because essentially you're, you have this Ruby gem that then like calls off to like node land and or JavaScript land and, like, figures out how to make these files work together and then tries to, like, do its best to, you know, give you the smallest possible assets. But the issue with it is it's it's very small, first of all. There's not a lot of people developing on it. Um, whereas if you look at Webpack or Webpacker, or, well, Webpack specifically, which is what Webpacker abstracts away. Webpack has all these developers working on it, super battle-tested, whereas, like, the asset pipeline is kind of like, we had this before Webpack existed, and it's kind of like legacy, but, you know, some people really like working with the pipeline, so right now we just dual-ship and let people decide how they want to handle things.
1: I came into Rails around Rails 3, and my first job was as a Rails support engineer where I was helping people with hosting. You wouldn't believe how many tickets I had to address around the asset pipeline just because developers were constantly confused about why assets acted differently in development versus production. And so I'm curious, do we have that same issue with Webpacker or does the behavior locally match what you deploy in production?
0: For the most part, it'll match what you deploy to production. It's all going to depend on the settings that you have as well um, because there's some extra minification steps and transpilation steps that may happen in production that may not happen in development. Like the big one is um, like optimizing all the chunks. And so basically, like it does its best to like, find pieces of the code that you uh, may not necessarily need. And it also try to find pieces of the code that are shared so that you can like share these chunks of code between different pieces. Um, So there are cases where you may hit that, but for the most part, it's pretty true to form in that what you see in development, you'll get in production, as long as you don't have any craziness going on between your settings.
1: That makes sense. And that leads me to my last question. So why was Webpacker becoming the default for Rails 6 so important?
0: The biggest reason is it opens you up to the entire NPM ecosystem. So if you look at the asset pipeline, the only way to get it to work with NPM is you have to physically pull down whatever NPM package you want to use. You have to manually compile it and then you just kind of like shove it into a corner in the asset pipeline and just hope that it works. Whereas with Webpacker, Webpacker, it's as simple as, you know, import you know, jQuery from jQuery, and, and you're done, you're all set. Well, I'll, also, you'll have to add it to your node modules folder with a yarn add jQuery, but it's similar concept of, you know, it's pretty much like three steps and you're there. Whereas with the asset pipeline, there's a lot more steps involved. And in the end, you'll still end up with a more bloated final piece of code because the benefit of Webpacker is that it can also take whatever target you want to go for. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the .browsers list RC. Um, that basically tells Webpacker what browsers you're trying to target, and it will effectively transpile to those specific browsers. So you can even ship smaller bundles of code based on whether or not you're targeting, like, the latest browsers versus, you know, legacy IE11. Obviously, the IE11 browsers will have bigger bundles because you have to send along a bunch of polyfills for that.
1: I'm going to ask you on the spot, Connor, what is your favorite browser to support and what is your least favorite browser to support?
0: (laughs) So my favorite browser to support is obviously Chrome and Firefox. Those are, you know, those are always up there. Um, Least favorite, I can't even say IE11 because I've never had to support it, but it's definitely Safari right now. Safari feels like the uh, modern day Internet Explorer these days because I feel like I'm always hitting like bizarre edge cases with safari only and we have a, we have a few tickets over at view that are like we only see this issue in safari and so that's <laughs> that's pretty much where i'm at with safari these days
1: i could hear you on that so let's get into snowpacker what led you to build it and can you give us an explanation of what it is
0: so uh snowpacker is an abstraction on top of a newer front-end bundler i, I don't even know if they're called bundlers what so basically, there's these newer bundle list bundlers, um, Snowpack and, and Vite by uh, Evan Yu, who made Vue. Um, not, not Vue where I work, but Vue the uh, SPA framework. Um, and so these newer bundlers, what they do is they do on-demand loading by using the new module spec that came in, I think, 2017 is when they introduced the official module spec. Um, Basically what happens is these these bundlers have super tiny startup times because it doesn't load anything right away. You don't load anything until you request it. And everything gets cached with the three oh four header, so when you do go to re request it, you know, there's nothing to actually re-request and just serves you from the cache. And so actually I discovered Snowpack through Andrew Mason, who has actually been on this show and was you know, it's actually funny. I'm I'm gonna go off for a second here andrew's the reason like i got involved in twitter he's the reason i got involved in discord and really like put myself out there in the rails community um and i actually went back and looked when his episode was because it was actually on this show i've actually been listening to this show since kyle daigle was the host so like this show has been like part of my entire developer experience um so i went back and looked andrew was last on May 27th, 2020, so it's about a year ago that I was listening, and I still remember it. He's like, just surround yourself with other Rails devs, just put yourself in the fold, and just keep pushing, and eventually someone will, you know, come along and just just be there, just constantly be available, and I really took that to heart, and that's when I started joining, you know, discords and twitters and really getting myself involved was because of him, and the reason I say that was he's the person who actually introduced me to Snowpack, he um, he showed me Snowpack, and I was working on Bridgetown at the time, which is a uh, Ruby static site generator by Jared White. And he showed me Snowpack, and I just fell in love with it immediately. It was so fun to work with; everything was so fast, like there was no waiting around. Bridgetown ships with like this Webpack version, but like there's a bunch of sleeps in there, so you have to wait like eight seconds for the dev server to start up. And you're like, all right, there's got to be a better way than this. And he showed me Snowpack, and I fell in love with it, and I'm like, maybe I can bring this to Rails, and I actually ended up getting a proof of concept for Snowpacker for Rails, and I I really wish I had a lot more time to work on it. I started working on it before I got hired by Hampton, and so I just haven't had time to really work on it, but um, there's actually a new project called Vite Rails, or Vite Ruby is what it is now. Um, I'm gonna to totally mess up his name. I think his name is Maximo Mussini, I think it is. I, I totally butchered that, but he has this awesome project called FlightRail. So if you are interested in using like the newer, like bundless bundlers, you should probably check that out because thats that's been fun to work with. I've really liked using that.
1: This episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Okay, so we all know how VPN protects your privacy and security online, right? but I didn't know this until recently, and it's taking my TV watching game to the next level. You can use a VPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. Over the weekend, I used ExpressVPN to binge Taskmaster on Canadian YouTube. It was so simple. I just fired up the ExpressVPN app, changed my location to Canada, refreshed YouTube, and that's it. See, ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost a hundred different countries, so just think about all the Netflix libraries you can go through. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason I use ExpressVPN to watch shows is because it is ridiculously fast. There's never any buffering or lag, and you can stream in HD no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So you can watch what you want on the go or on the big screen wherever you are. Protect your online activity today with a VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com ruby, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com ruby, expressvpn.com ruby. Thank you to ExpressVPN for supporting the show. I have so many thoughts around what you just said. First of all, I could easily build a community of Andrew Mason superfans because I am one myself. So Andrew is a wonderful asset to the community, and he provides so much insight. Second, I definitely owe the world a Bridgetown-themed episode, so I am going to work on that. And third, I didn't know about Vite Ruby, so we'll definitely link that up in the show notes. I'm super interested to dig into it so when you decided to build snowpacker I know you've listed this out in the readme but what inspired what was it inspired by
0: um it was inspired by just working with snowpack in bridgetown and just wanting to bring that same experience to rails honestly and on top of it I also didn't have a I was still working as a paramedic at the time and I'm like this would be a really great project because this is like totally different from anything that people do. This isn't like a regular portfolio project. This is solving like a real problem. Like I want to do this and maybe it'll get me noticed to get a job and you know, a lot of people did notice it. Um, And so I think it definitely helped me in my job search to make a project like this that, you know, not many people really want to tackle. Nobody's excited to go make make an abstraction over a front end bundler.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. And yes, it certainly uh, definitely had you stand out because that's how I learned about you was because of Snowpacker. So how's the experience of leading a popular open source project taught you?
0: Uh, It's taught me how much work and maintenance go into open source projects, honestly. Like there's 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 a lot of work that goes into making things work right. There's a lot of things you have to constantly be updating. um, And it, it it. it takes a lot to make a really good open source project. And mine's not even that popular. So I can't imagine what the popular ones must look like and how much maintenance goes into those because it, it really is a lot of work.
1: What is the future of the project? You mentioned, obviously, you're quite busy. You have a family and you have a great job. So, you know, would you ultimately like to see Snowpacker continue to progress? Would you like to watch what happens with Vite Ruby and possibly lend some ideas to it? Like, what would you like to see happen?
0: Ideally, I would love to keep going with Snowpacker, but there's also a lot of other things that went into making it. I also had to make a uh, full, I had to make a full roll-up setup, which is another bundler similar to Webpack. I had to make a full roll-up setup to bundle everything from Snowpack because at the time, Snowpack didn't support bundling. It does now through ES Build. So like there's a lot of like legacy stuff in there that I had to fix. And it's like, why Why would I keep going with the project that I know needs a lot of work when Vite? Vite Ruby slash Vite Rails is a perfectly suitable alternative and does the exact same thing. So at this point I I've submitted a few pull requests over to Vite Ruby and I've been a big supporter of that project and honestly I don't see Snowpacker moving forward in its current state. If someone would want to take it over, I'm totally open to that. But as of right now I'm totally all in on Vite Ruby and Vite Rails and trying to make that as best as it can.
1: That's great. I love your attitude around that, Connor, because, you know, you're really taking the ego out of the equation. You understand that there's a problem out there. It's a difficult problem. Not many people want to solve it. And so if you can identify a project that's up and coming, that's doing something not quite exactly what you're doing, but something that's tackling the same problem. I my next question was to ask you how listeners can support the future of the project. But it really sounds like you would recommend that they they check out Vitals.
0: That's exactly what I have in my notes, actually. For that question, I I said, don't support it. Go check out Vite Rails, honestly.
1: I love that. So as I ask all of my guests, Connor, what are your thoughts on the future of the Ruby and Ruby on Rails communities?
0: Well, this is a loaded question considering everything happening with Basecamp this past week. But um, overall, I see a bright future for it, honestly. Um, I think a lot of people are moving away from Node. I don't know if you've seen, but like Nate Berkopec and... um, Justin Searles who runs the standard project. They both said that they've seen a huge drop off in support for for node projects and everyone's been moving towards Ruby for startups. So I think there's a there's a bright future ahead and it definitely seems like all the big companies like uh, shopify and everyone else they're all they're all moving heavily towards how can we make ruby better and i think there's a very bright future for rails because it solves a very big issue for people of how do we deploy a web app how do we do it quickly and how do we do it with a mature stable framework
1: i agree so if you had to do it all over again you started with java and then ended up in ruby do you think ultimately that was the best path for you
0: I think ultimately, yes. Java gave me some great fundamentals to work with and showed me you know, just how hard the developer experience can be, and Ruby showed me how much easier it can be. So I think it's always important to have that little bit of uh, struggle before you get to the easy stuff.
1: I sure agree with that as well. So, Connor, how can listeners follow you?
0: Uh, You can actually follow me on Twitter. Um, It's my last name, Rogers, followed by my first name, Connor, K-O-N-N-O-R. Um, and then also on GitHub, Paramagic Dev, and yeah, that's pretty much it. I'm not, I'm not too out there on social media, but I'm I'm pretty active on Twitter. So yeah, just follow me, and you know that's that's it.
1: Fantastic, Connor. I want to thank you so much for coming onto the show and sharing your story. It's so important that listeners hear about how self-taught developers who have tenacity really can be successful. So it's so important to get those stories out there. And also thank you for all your work on Snowpacker and really unbundling what it's like to work with a front end bundler
0: thank you so much for having me i appreciate it
1: you've been listening to the ruby on rails podcast on the five x five network subscribe to us on itunes google play or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on ruby on rails and
0: open source software while you're at it please leave us a review and thank you for listening